Well, we are glad that you are here. This series, Protagonists, Synonymous, loving this series. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am, as much as we are. It's a great series, I think, in part two, because the people that we're talking about week in and, and week out, that there are life lessons that God intends for us to find in them, and our, our time and our attention gets so consumed by the popular people in the Bible that we forget that there is deep truth waiting for us in the lives of all the people that God chose to put in Scripture for us. The, the question that I want to pose to you tonight is, is it possible to walk in disagreement without standing in conflict? Is it possible to walk in disagreement without standing in conflict? And not only do I believe that the answer to that question is yes, but I'm convinced that the church is supposed to be leading the way. The church is supposed to be leading the way. Secular society is so, should be knocking down the door of the church and asking us the question, how is it? That so many of you can be in disagreement with one another, but still walk together in relationship and refuse to stand in conflict. And tonight what we're going to find as we look at the life of Silas and John Mark in the book of Acts as they are introduced to us, that their lives and then the conflict that they became complicit in with Paul and Barnabas, I believe, is given to us by God to help us to understand how we're supposed to do just this. That when we find ourselves in conflict, how to move it back to a place of disagreement so that we can continue to walk together, that every disagreement is not supposed to fracture relationships. And I believe that's the culture of society, and unfortunately, it becomes the culture of church. So let, can, let's, let's, just, let's just agree on some terminology. Can we do that? Because different words mean different things to people. Let's just talk a little bit about what I'm going to define disagreement to be. There's going to be some terms that come up onto the screen. I'm going to work through them just briefly for the sake of time. The first one is just what is a disagreement? I'm defining disagreement as an irreconcilable difference where there is only room for one outcome. Now, there's all kinds of disagreements, but this is the kind of disagreement that often produces a conflict. Again, we'll talk about what that means and the difference between those two. An irreconcilable difference where there's only room for one outcome. Now, let me give you examples of some disagreements. One is what I would say, disagreements that have a preferential context. If your disagreement has a preferential context, it should never result in a conflict. Meaning that if you were to ask me, who's your all-time favorite basketball player, and I were to say Michael Jordan, and then if I were to ask you who your all-time favorite basketball player is, and you're probably going to say LeBron James, right? The question is, who's your favorite? You tracking with me? The context of that is preferential. There should never be a conflict that results from that disagreement because personal preference does not always have to compete with each other. We have to make room for one another. You tracking with me? So when you find yourself in a disagreement, you should ask yourself, is this just a matter of preference? If it is a matter of preference, then that should be the end of it. You can have fun talking about it. You, 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 you can be intellectually challenging, presenting your position. But if the question is, what's your favorite, then you should make room for each other. And it's true for a lot of things in life. Is it a preferential context? The next one is, is it competing? So if the question was, who's the greatest of all time? Uh-huh. It's different, isn't it? Because there can be only one goat. So if you were to ask me who's the greatest of all time, I would say Michael Jordan. And some of you would say 
Yes, thank you. Whoever said Michael Jordan over here? All right, there you go. All right, see you out there, Keaton. Right, but, but regardless of what your answer is, we've stepped into a new territory. Does that make sense? Because there can be only one. So now we have a competing opinions. Now we have a real disagreement that has the potential to be a conflict, but it does not require action. See, so when you have in front of you a disagreement where there can be only one ultimate answer, but it doesn't demand any action to ultimately be required, then that should never produce a conflict as well. You're tracking with me? Let me give you a third one. And this is real for many of you right now. If schools decide to reopen, and you're a husband and a wife, or a single parent even, and you have somebody that you're reaching out to that you're processing with, even if schools open, you have to make a decision if you're going to send your kids back to school. Understand the difference here? It's competing because if you're married and, and one person is saying they're not going to go and the other spouse is saying they are going to go, right? There can only be one outcome. It's not reconcilable and an action is required because at some point, are they going to go back to school or not going to go back to school? And these are the kinds of circumstances and situation that quickly become conflict because an action is demanded, now, let me define this idea of walk-in, this idea of walk-in disagreement. Our disagreement does not erode our relationship, meaning that trust and affection continue while working towards agreement. See, we've got to be learned to walk in disagreement, that even when the disagreement is a competing opinion that requires an action, we should walk in it together, meaning that the connection of the heart is more important to us than the meaning of the mind. That we don't let the relationship become subservient to the decision. The relational connection should be transcendent to the choice. We have to walk in it together. In the agreement, listen to me, the agreement could actually be an ultimate action. It could be a compromise that you find that there's a, another choice that you didn't realize that you had. And then if no action is required, it remains a disagreement because you just agree that each person isn't entitled to an opinion that does not have to necessarily be reconciled to one another. You cross the boundary of conflict when your attitude and mindset is one of being unyielding, meaning that you demand the other person agree with you. See, you, you, you move from disagreement to conflict when you say... I don't care how long it takes you, but eventually you've got to come to my side here. And you're unyielding to the point that maybe it's your responsibility to go to their side or meet somewhere in between. See, that's when disagreement becomes conflict. And you stand in conflict when there is a diminished or loss of relationship is likely. You're tracking with me? Because when you stand in conflict against one another and you're not willing to move forward that relationship begins to diminish because at some point emotionally the other person begins to realize your point of view is more important than them. This is how marriages erode. Over. Another sermon for another time. But this is how marriages erode. Year after year after year, they have these little compartmentalized moments where they stood in conflict that were never resolved 
and it undermines their relationship slowly and erodes and eventually falls away. Acts 15, 36 to 41. Acts 15, 36 to 41. After some time, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, let's go back and visit each city where we previously preached the word of the Lord to see how the new believers are doing. Barnabas agreed, wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul disagreed strongly. Since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work, their disagreement was so sharp, they separated right here in the Bible. Two of Christianity's heroes find themselves standing in conflict, relationship lost, fractured. Paul chose Silas, and as he left, the believers entrusted him to the Lord's gracious care, and then he traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches there. This is actually the first recorded church split in Christian history, right here, right here. And not from two reprobates, right? Not from two people that like character, but these are two heroes of the faith for us. How did that happen? Their first missionary journey, he and Barnabas, speaking of Paul, visited nine separate cities, four of which they visited twice. Historians can't quite agree. They left somewhere between 45 or 46 A.D., and then they came back in 48 A.D. So they were gone for two to three years, right? We, we block it going on a mission trip that lasts for five days, right? And then when we come back, we're like, look what we have done. Huh? Two to three years. Paul's in prison, beaten, almost dies. There's plots to kill him and local churches have to sneak him out. If you're trying to get someone to go on a mission trip, don't read these stories to them. And we balk at what we try to do. You know Paul is up in heaven going, you're kidding me, right? You won't get on an air-conditioned plane and be gone just for a few days? This is what they did. Risked their lives two to three years, leaving what would be modern-day Syria, traveling to Cyprus, then all throughout modern-day Turkey and back again over two to three years. Acts 13, 13, we're just given this little note. Paul and his companions then left Paphos by ship for Pamphylia, landing at the port of Perga. And then Luke just kind of inserts this little note here. There, John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, as we're in Acts 13, we don't know why he left or that there was, that was a problem that he left. It's almost it's inserted in the, in the text as if he was supposed to go or he was sent on some errand. It's not until two chapters later do we realize that his leaving was actually a desertion or at least how that's characterized by Paul. He said, we're not going to take this young adult back with us again. They're not trustworthy. They abandon us. And we're not told why. Silas, we know him. He's a leader in the church. As you back up several verses, we're not going to read through it for the sake of time, but in verses 1 through 35, as Paul and Barnabas were there in Jerusalem to settle a dispute, among, a, a doctrinal dispute that was taking place in, in their hometown of Antioch, where their church was, where they were ministering, their home base, 
that, that the Jerusalem council made a decision and they picked two men to travel with Paul and Barnabas back to bear witness so it wouldn't just be Paul and Barnabas coming back and just telling people what they wanted to hear. So they picked two trustworthy men. Silas was one of them. The Bible goes as far to say that he was a prophet. And it's our understanding that that's where the beginning of the relationship started for Paul and Silas. So Paul says, I'm going to go back and do my missions work with Silas. And Barnabas says, okay, well, I'll take John Mark, who happens, happens to actually be his cousin. John Mark is first mentioned to us in Scripture, not by name, but most historians agree that in Mark 14, 51, 52, it says, this is the night of Jesus' arrest in Gethsemane. It says, one young man followed behind, was clothed only in a long linen shirt, and when the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. His first mention of the Bible is streaking through the streets of Jerusalem. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, it says that he followed from behind. See, John Mark had a cowardice problem. He was hiding then, and he was retreating now. And Paul is saying, it troubles me that you're going to ask me to put my life into his hands. I won't do it again. Now, it's interesting when we look at this conflict through the filter of the three choices that I just gave you. The first one, we should ask ourselves the question, is this a preferential situation? And my answer to you would be no. It's not. Because at some point, they have to decide, are they going to take him or not? See, they're not saying, listen to me, they're not saying, let's each go on a journey. Who do you want to take? Do you want to take Silas and John Mark? Then that would be a moment of preference. But that's not where the conversation starts. The conversation starts, we're going to go back on a, a missions trip together and Barnabas says, let's take John Mark. And Paul says, no, we won't. Right? They're at an impasse. So this isn't a moment of preference. So the next question is, is it a competing decision that does not require an action? I would say no, it's not. Because at some point, they're going to get onto a ship. And is John Mark going to go with them or not? So they find themselves in a competing moment where action is required. And it stopped becoming a disagreement and became a conflict when they allowed that disagreement to sever their relationship with one another. Now the good news is, as we continue to read throughout Scripture, we find that they were reconciled to one another. Let me just move through some of this. Our notes are always online, so you can download them if you're interested in doing a further study. But we know that Paul was eventually reconciled to Barnabas. I've got the textual references there. We know that he was eventually reconciled to John Mark. The notes online, again, on our website, the PDF. I've got the textual references there. And I believe that ultimately they came to a place of reconciliation because they began to ask themselves these three questions. Now, I'm just reading into this based on the life of Barnabas and the life of Paul. So these are my ideas that I'm just sharing with you. You can decide whether or not you agree with them. But I found them to be affected even in my own relationships in life. See, when you're in a place of conflict and relationship has been severed, you find your way back to a place of restoration of relationship with people that you once loved and cared about when you begin to ask yourself these three questions. Were we once called to a common sacred purpose that we've now lost? See, because when God calls you to a common sacred purpose, that should be instructive to you. And it should give you pause 
to not want to walk away from relationships that have been God-ordained for the accomplishment of a kingdom purpose. And I think Paul and Barnabas realized, because they had done incredible things on that first missionary journey. I think both of them realized, why are, why are we at odds with each other? We have a common sacred purpose that we've been given. I think the second question is, they were both men of Christian character. Just because we're people of Christian character doesn't mean that we make mistakes. The question is, does it characterize who you are? Is it the exception or the norm? The restoration of relationship then goes into this idea of, of can I trust the character of Christ in that person? Are we called to a common sacred purpose? Is there a Christian character in one another that we can trust? And the third one is what is the fruit of the ministry of their lives? Their marriage, their parenting, their kingdom work, their vocation, their jobs. When I look at them, when I observe them, what is the fruit that is around them? And I think Paul and Barnabas looked at each other and said, hey, there's a lot of incredible fruit that's coming from one another. Why, why are we at odds? You have a common sacred purpose. There's Christian character that you can trust. There's ministry fruit in that person's life. You sh we should be always be asking ourselves these three questions if we find ourselves relationally estranged from people we once loved and cared for. You can't get away from the fact that Paul and Silas and Barnabas were all central to the birthing of Christianity. And you know who John Mark eventually became? He became Mark that gave us one of the four Gospels. Yeah. See, Barnabas saw something in this young man that Paul could not see. There are only four people that God chose to tell the story of the life of Jesus. You ever stop and think about that? All the, the thousands of people that God could have said, you tell the story. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's high praise, right? We know it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he had to pick someone to do it. And he picks John Mark to give us one of the four Gospels. It makes you wonder. Would he have been able to follow God's calling if someone had not believed in him when he didn't deserve it? <laughs> I think this is just, again, me reading into it. I think when Barnabas and John Mark got on their own ship and went their own way, I think Barnabas was having a conversation with God. Who in the heck does that guy think he is? He He's upset with my cousin for going home too early? He's a murderer! right? He was killing Christians. Right? Can you imagine the conversation Barnabas had with God in that moment? Just getting it out, venting to the Lord in a moment of prayer. I think sometimes we forget that these are people with feelings and ideas and opinions and struggles, but they overcame those things to stand together in a place of unity in the face of insurmountable odds. See, when you're a place of conflict, let me just say this to you. If you're in a place of conflict, do not try to get to a place of, of agreement because that's impossible, right? If you're in a place of conflict, just try to get to a place of disagreement. You're tracking with me? Just try to get to a place of disagreement and then work on agreement. Me meaning that just restore your value and the belief in the relationship. Don't, don't try to work out the difference of opinion. You will not do it. Because the context of the value of the relationship incentivizes you to move forward to agreement. So you move from conflict. We do this with married couples. We don't try to get them to a place of agreement. We just try to get them back to a place where they value the relationship. 
so they can begin walking in the disagreement again and working it out. If you're in a place of conflict, you've got to ask yourself those three questions. And I would also say to you that if you're going to start walking together again, you've got to discover these three values. The first one is this, mutual respect. We have lost our ability for mutual respect as a society. And, and the church has failed the secular world in demonstrating the example of how that works. Mutual respect says, you can see it on the screen, I don't agree with you, but I see how you got there. That's mutual respect. Mutual respect. I have all kinds of relationships with all kinds of pastors, with all kinds of doctrinal positions that are very different from what we hold to here at the City Life Church. And in our conversations always end the healthy relationships. You know what? I can't agree with you, but I, but I see how you got there. I see how you got there. That's what mutual respect says. We've got to find the ability to see how people get to their conclusions, even if it's not the conclusion that we have ourselves. Self-awareness, number two. You've got to value these things, people. You will not walk together in a healthy way in disagreement if you cannot do these three things I'm giving you. Mutual respect, self-awareness. You have to be open to the possibility, as remote as it might be, because as perfect as we are, that we might be the one that's wrong. If, if you're not, if you, listen to me, if you are not willing to at least be open to the possibility that you are wrong, then I would say to you that you are infringing on a self-imposed idea of sovereignty that only belongs to God himself. Are there exceptions to that? Sure there are. And the exceptions are the things where the Bible says that these are immovable truths and moral boundaries that will never change. That's the difference. But we like to add to that basket many of our own ways of thinking. Self-awareness. This is a, a personal discipline I have. It's one I challenge leaders to have. You've heard me say this before. The way that you maintain healthy self-awareness is that you always have to be considering sources and viewpoints that challenge your own. If you're not willing to read and listen to and study viewpoints that are different from yours, I'm telling you, you will slowly drift out of a place of self-awareness and into a place of self-righteousness and arrogance. I read a book this past year I believe the author is John Chandler. It's called Uptick. He talks about what's called the five capitals of our human experience. Spiritual, relational, physical, intellectual, and financial. Our minds are something that God has entrusted to us, and it's our responsibility to grow and mature them. And the way that you grow and mature your mind, in part, is by study. It's part of what, when Scripture talks about study to show thyself approved, I, I think it's talking about intellectual capital. When Jesus said, the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, mind is in the list. We have a risk. God expects us to do some of the heavy lifting for our intellectual capacity, our intellectual capital to grow. And it takes someone with a disciplined intellect to be willing to do the heavy lifting of sorting through the viewpoints of people that disagree with you. And it's wonderful because sometimes you find that you are the one that's wrong. And, and when you find that 
and looking at those viewpoints that you're reaffirmed in your position, it helps you to better articulate why you believe what you believe. So that you can stay better in a realm of disagreement and not drift over into a place of conflict. And can I just tell you the other thing that it helps you do? It helps you learn how people get to where they are who differ from you. See, self-awareness helps make mutual respect possible. And people that struggle with mutual respect are oftentimes people who struggle with self-awareness who have a deficit with intellectual capital. Accountability. These are three words that we do not like, right? It's like eating our broccoli and our spinach when we're kids. Accountability. Belonging to a church family where you have both permission-giving and pause-giving relationships. You've heard me talk about permission-giving relationships for 13 years of me leading this church. I'm adding a phrase in there called pause-giving relationships. So you should have also peers. We've talked about this, but we've never articulated with this word. You should have peers in your life, right? People that you're kind of in step with in your spiritual journey. And maybe those all five of those capitals, you're kind of in a similar realm together. Pause-giving relationships are just people that when they say, you know, I'm not sure that's right, or I'm not sure that's a good decision, it should give you pause. It doesn't mean you defer to them completely, but it should just cause you to pump the brakes. You tracking with me? Those are healthy relationships, I have relationships in my life that are pause-giving relationships. But you also have to have permission-giving relationships. You learn a lot about people with this idea of permission-giving relationships. You hear me say it all the time. I'm in a permission-giving relationship with all the elders of the church. Permission-giving. Meaning if they were to say no, I don't move in whatever I'm trying to do until they say yes. And that's not just in leading the church, but that's in our personal lives as well. We're in permission-giving relationships with people. Now, is that risky? Sure it is. Is it control? Not when it's healthy. And you know what I find? So people come through this church, they love permission-giving relationships when they're the ones that are saying no to other people. But you want to learn something about somebody's character? When they're on the receiving end of that's not right. If you've got permission-giving relationships in your life, people that their journey and where they are in their, in their spiritual walk, you trust the depth of their wisdom so much to the point that, that, that their no just doesn't give you pause, but it causes you to stay where you are until you can work it out. It doesn't mean that you don't ultimately do the thing that's the desire of your heart, but you trust these relationships that God has given to you. And what happens with people is that they jump out of the relationships that God had given them. Sometimes it wasn't to deter them. Sometimes it was just to slow them down. If you don't have these deep kinds of relationships, then I would say you probably have a pattern of moving from conflict to conflict throughout your life. And more than likely, a deficit in relational, spiritual, and intellectual capital. See, I think this conversation with Paul and Barnabas could have gone completely different. Completely different if they had followed these things. And I think they could have followed these things, but we're not going to do it for the sake of time, but it's in the notes. If you were to go back to read Acts 15, 1 through 35, when they were the ones together at odds with someone else, what you find is that the Jerusalem council followed many of these steps. 
And a moment of disagreement never became a moment of conflict. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to put this conflict with Paul and Barnabas right on the tail end of the one that happened right in front of it. As if the Holy Spirit is saying, now let me show you how two men who knew what they were supposed to do because they were in the midst of this one, how they turned around and abandoned everything that they knew to be right when it got personal between the two of them. I think Paul and Barnabas could have said, you know what? Paul could have said to Barnabas, I can see, he's family to you. He, he should have an expectation from you, Barnabas, that's different from me. He's blood. You, you owe him something. I almost died on that last missions trip many times. I just, I, I can't bring myself to put my trust in him again. I know that I should, but I just can't. Right? Can't you hear Barnabas saying, he is my cousin. I see something in him. I see something in him just like I saw something in you. Because Barnabas was the person that vouched for Paul to give him a place in the early church. Barnabas was this person who was gifted by God to see the potential in people that no one else could see. What if Barnabas had said, Paul, there's something in this young man. I can't quite, he's, he's going to play a part. I, I, just, I feel like I'm supposed to take him under my wing. Right? You can see, you, you're tracking with me? And then they, as two men, could have said, why don't we do this? Why don't we both go on a trip, and I'm going to take Silas, because I, he's supposed to have a part in this, and, and, and you take John Mark, and let's see what God would do. See, they would have ended up in the same place, but their relationship would have been intact. Because that's an example of walking in disagreement. They had an irreconcilable position that they could not agree on. And they could have found a way, which they ultimately did through fracturing a third lane that honored both of them together. Thank the Lord that they eventually reconciled. I love that God put this story in the Bible because if we're not careful, we'll read these stories as if to say, I'll never be able to rise to the standard that these people, but God gives us over and over and over again heroes that are imperfect, and so are we. I just want to shift gears here just for a minute especially for people that are watching from home. I just felt such a sense that I was supposed to end the service this way tonight. In Acts 20, 21, I love this verse. This is Paul saying, I, I have had one message for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin, turning to God, and having faith in our Lord Jesus. It's powerful, isn't it? If you're watching from home, I would just ask you this question, have you done these three things? If you're here tonight, I would ask you this question, have you done these three things? And I would say it actually starts with the third thing on the list. 
of having faith in Christ. Because you're never going to be able to repent of your sin and you're never going to be able to turn to God. I want to talk about what that is just briefly. You're not ever going to be able to do either of those things until you put your faith in the one who died for you. Because those things require the working and the power of the Holy Spirit to be inside of you and not just all around you. And so I want to ask you tonight, if you're watching from home, if you're here in this room, as you look back onto the story of your life, can you find a moment in time where you've made a vow of devotion to Christ? That's what it means to put your faith in Him. The Dr. Earl Palmer, Presbyterian pastor at, at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington, who's, who's long since retired, but I love his phrase for what it means to make a vow of devotion to Christ. He, he, he's always called it to put the full weight of your life on Jesus. That's good, isn't it? The full weight of your life on Jesus. Not just to lean on him a little, but just fall right over into his arms, to abandon yourself into his life and into his calling. I'm just going to invite you to bow your heads with me where you are. If you're watching from home, do it too. Don't feel awkward. If you're, if you're watching with your family or friends, don't be afraid. Bow your head. Close your eyes. I'm going to invite you to say this prayer with me. If you're here, let's just say it all together. Jesus, I put the full weight of my life into your hands. I believe that you are God's son. I believe that you rose from the dead. I believe that you died for my sins. And on this day, I make a vow of devotion to you. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I hope you see one of us, somebody in a blue shirt. There's a little green book that we want to give to you that just talks about where you go from here. If you're watching from online, you can request prayer. You can go into a chat room and we can get your contact information. We want to send you that as a free gift too that just talks to you about what you do tomorrow. Because tomorrow you got to do some stopping and you got to do some starting. Stopping means that you begin to lay down the things that you know that you need to stop doing. And that little green book that we want to give to you actually teaches you what it means to turn to God. It talks to you about the things that you need to start doing. But you'll never be able to do it without the power of the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Stand with me as we pray. Father, I thank you for this series that we're in all summer, Protagonists Anonymous. I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to highlight and amplify the major lessons of these minor roles. And I pray for people specifically tonight that they would begin to, if they're in a place of conflict, to drift back towards a place of disagreement that they would value the relationship more than the conversation about the ideas over which they are at odds. Help us as a church, as your church, to model for the world how we walk in disagreement with one another no matter how long it takes that you've given us a ministry of reconciliation. And we know that means lots of things theologically, but one of them most certainly is this idea 
of the restoration of relationship on the other side of conflict and disagreement. Silas and John Mark, we know that you're looking down on us right now. Right now. Thank you. Thank you for the work that you did on this earth. And Jesus, we pray that you would help us to demonstrate the kind of character that we find in these real people, in these real stories of history that you've given to us as sacred texts who were supposed, that are supposed to guide us and lead us and inspire us to live well for you. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, amen. We'll see you next week.